to just start off today, I don't know if you, you know, if you look up there and you look at my last name, I don't know if you ever noticed, my last name is spelled a little bit different than most people spell Hudson. Usually it's spelled with a D, not a T. And uh, that goes back to the very first Hudson with a T that ever came to America. My ancestor named Skinner Hudson. Skinner's got, I think that's a pretty cool first name, Skinner. But Skinner Hudson, the story, it's probably been embellished over the years, but Skinner was an exile. He was an exile. He supposedly, as a 13 or 14-year-old boy, he was um, an orphan living on the streets of London in England. And he was caught uh, stealing money from a cash box at a print shop and was arrested and put in the infamous Tower of London, where I guess they used to torture people and stuff. And um, He was uh, put on trial, and for his, his, the, his sentence was he was sent to America. That's what they decided to do with him. They sent him here. Uh, a lot of people know and are familiar that the British used to send criminals to Australia, but that actually didn't happen until the 1780s. Uh, prior to that, they sent them to the colonies, which may have been part of the reason why they sent a bunch of troublemakers to the colonies, why we eventually didn't want to be a part of England anymore. Um, that might have backfired on them. But, my, but Skinner came to America in the early 1770s, right around the time the Revolutionary was about ready to break out. And he actually volunteered in Washington's army, served as a private. And after the war was over, because they couldn't really pay very well, he was given land in what was then the wilderness territory of Ohio. And he lived here with his, he got married, had kids, and stayed here the rest of his life. And it's why uh, my family, Hudson's with a T, have been in Ohio since. At least most of us are still here. And probably why we're kind of considered some troublemakers, too, besides that. <laughs> but exiled, he came here because he was exiled. To be exiled has been used for centuries by many nations and even by God sometimes as a consequence for someone's actions. And in the case of the nation of Israel, because of their regular and consistent disobedience to God's laws, God allowed the people to be exiled. And if you want to put up that first um, sl timeline slide there. In, the, um, in 586 BC, God allowed the nation of Babylon to rise to power to totally destroy Jerusalem. They, they crushed the temple. They broke down the city walls and everything in it. And the people, they were forced to, to go live in exile in Babylon. And which is, by the way, in like modern day Iraq now. And they lived there for a while, but by 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire had fallen and the Persians had become the world power. And their, their general stance was to allow many of these exiled peoples that had come into Babylon to return home. You can go back to your home, the place where you lived, but, but we're going to still control you. They would put a, a governor in charge of that region. And typically, they would pick a governor who was from that home nation. They would pick somebody that the people knew and respected because they wanted to appease the people from trying to rebel but they still wanted control. The Persians still wanted to be in power. And the, the man who was chosen when the Jewish people began to first go back to Jerusalem was a man named Zerubbabel, another great name. 
Zerubbabel, he was appointed as the governor. And unlike my exiled ancestor, Skinner, the Israel, Israelite people were allowed and excited to go back to their homeland. And one of the other people who first went back, one of the other first people who went back was a Jewish priest by the name of Zechariah. Zechariah, who is going to be the minor prophet that we're going to talk about today. So let's pray and then we'll look at this book of his. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for your loving presence. Thank you for this book of Zechariah. Help us to glean the major message that you have for us to understand and then to take it and apply it to our lives. We just pray your presence would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So to be honest, Zechariah is a very rich book, but it is weird. It is very odd. It is very odd. And one commentator I read said it's one of the hardest books to read and understand in the whole Bible. So I guess you could say I kind of drew the short straw on the minor prophet list. But, uh, but, but why is it so hard? Why, what's so confusing about it? Well, a couple things. First of all, it's filled with tons of symbolism. There are all these supernatural visions, which we're going to talk about today, that have these odd symbolic meanings. I mean, there's a, there's a stone with seven eyes. There's these, these angelic horses of different colors. There's a man with a measuring line. There's a golden lamp. There's a flying scroll. There's a woman in a basket. There's all these other odd objects with all these different meanings, and it just makes it confusing. Not only that, the style of writing in Zechariah shifts about halfway through the book. The first eight chapters are all kind of written a certain way, and then 9 through 14 are all written like in a totally different style. And some people have, have questioned, did Zechariah write the whole book? Maybe Zechariah wrote the first half of the book, and then maybe somebody post him who had similar ideas or kind of a, a vision or view kind of wrote the second part, and it just kind of got added in. And we don't really know for sure. There's no way for us to know. But I guess if the Old Testament tradition is that all 14 of these books belong to Zechariah, then, then we can probably lean on that as being true. We can at least support that. But not only are the writing styles different in shift, Zechariah, he doesn't give a lot of details or background. He kind of, he doesn't give us a lot of context. He kind of makes the assumption that the reader knows what's going on, which may have been true 2,500 years ago. <laughs> but if we pick our, up our Bibles today and we flip to Zechariah and you just start to read it, the very first verse, you're going to realize that there's not a lot of background and it can be really confusing to know what's going on. But thankfully, there are a lot of other, there are a couple other books in the Bible that were written around the same time period, around the, around the same group of people. And so we can look at those books and use them as clues and references to help. And the first one of those is another prophet that we're not going to talk about in this series, but it's a short book. It's by the prophet Haggai, just two chapters long. But Haggai is literally writing at the same time Zechariah is. They're like two partners in crime, trying to handle the same issues with the same people. And then also, the first ch six chapters, I was going to say chapters, the first six chapters of the book of Ezra, the book of Ezra in the Old Testament is also really helpful. Ezra tells kind of the historical background. It's much more like a history book of what is happening uh, with the people of Israel at that exact same time. So by kind of reading all those three things together, we can kind of piece some 
piece some of the puzzle together a little bit more clear. And, but unfortunately, Ezra, for a, you know, if you just pick up your Bible and you just start reading, you'll notice that Ezra is 23 books of the Bible prior to Zechariah. So it's completely out of order, like, which is another reason why it makes Zechariah become so confusing. But I think as we peel back some of the layers that we, we will see that there are some really profound, really cool truths in the book of Zechariah that are absolutely essential to our faith and some really amazing things going on. Now with 14 chapters and over 200 total verses, it is the longest of all the minor prophet books. So there's no way we're gonna go through it verse by verse. So we're just gonna talk about a couple of the main themes today uh, over the next few minutes so that we can kind of understand what the main points are. So first, the first theme and the first point in your outline uh, notes that I wanna make is that God calls us or he calls his people to repent of our past priorities, to repent of our past priorities. JT, when he first kind of kicked off this series, he explained by definition what a prophet was. That a prophet is someone who's a spokesperson for God. Someone who speaks on behalf of God, and one of the main things they typically do is they call the people to repent, to turn back to God, to stop what they were doing and, and correct course. And so being a good prophet and doing what a good prophet does, Zechariah, that's the very first thing he does, chapter one, verse one, is he calls the Israelite people to repent. Let's look at those very first verses here. Chapter one, verse one through six. It says this. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechah, son of Ido. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the early prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen. Or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. And where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But not, did not my words and my decrees which I commanded my servants and prophets overtake your ancestors. And then they repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. See, God tells Zechariah, he tells Zechariah to tell the Israelite people to repent and return to God and God will return to them. And he reminds them that their ancestors had prophets telling them to repent as well and they didn't listen. And he does not want to see their parents and grandparents make the same mistakes that they did, the things that caused them to get sent to be in exile. And in verse six, Zechariah tells us that the people did repent. But repent from what? He doesn't tell us specifically what they were doing wrong. See, that's where looking at Haggai and Ezra really comes in hand. Because when we're reading this, we just kind of can move on past that. But we get an idea of what was really happening. If we throw up that other timeline, the next timeline slide. So from the book of Ezra, we know, we know that around 537 BC, the king of Cyrus, or the king of Persia, who was named Cyrus at the time, he allowed the very first group of Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. And he gave them the okay to start building the temple again. Because the temple had been destroyed when the Babylonians came in. So Zerubbabel, who is the governor, who's been chosen to be the leader, um, 
he and the people, they start to lay the foundation of the temple and they build the altar, but then they stop. They stop and they, they leave it unfinished. And the people, we find out, begin to focus on other things. They start rebuilding their houses. They start establishing their farms. And at, for 17 years, the temple sits unfinished. It's a hole in the ground. And it's su- surprising to the people that things aren't going so well for them in those 17 years. There's droughts, and they have poor harvests, and, and things aren't going that great. Look what Haggai tells us about is happening at this time. Haggai chapter 1, 3 through 8, it says this. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are never warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Haggai tells us that God has been trying and trying to get their attention through tough circumstances, through poor harvests, through not enough food, drink, clothes, hoping the people would clue in that they need to repent of what they have prioritized. That they have been focusing on building their fancy wood-paneled houses for themselves. And I'm not sure exactly what these wood-paneled houses look like, but if you want to throw up that other picture, this is what I always kind of imagine. Remember that in 1950s, 60s, when that was popular? Now, I'm sure it didn't look like that. But, but all the while, the temple is undone. It's incomplete. Now, notice God is not saying it's wrong to build a house. He's not saying that. He's not saying it's wrong to establish your career or take care of your families. No, those, those are not bad things. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that you have put them in the wrong order, that they are out of priority. You need to prioritize me first. You need to make me number one. Remember, to the Jewish people, the temple is where God lives. It's where he dwells. See, today, we can worship God anywhere. We can worship God here in a church. We can worship God outside. You can worship God in a jail cell. But to the Jewish people, the temple was where God's presence was. In fact, the the Hebrew word hakal is translated, typically translated temple, is also the same exact word we we translate as palace palace, that God, the temple of, of God is actually God's palace. It's his house. It's his home. Without the temple, how could the people be worshiping and interacting with God in the way that the law called for? They couldn't. They couldn't. For 17 years, they've been back in Israel, and they were not worshiping God the way that, in the proper way that he wanted them to be. And God was saying, you need to repent. You need to repent of your past priorities and turn back and turn back to me and put me at the top of your list. And isn't this a very relatable challenge that we face today? You know, the secular speaker and writer, Stephen Covey, 
He was famous in the 90s for writing a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I don't know if any of you ever remember that. Um, but he popularized, one of his seven habits was he popularized this idea of putting first things first. That if you want to be a successful person, you need to be able to prioritize things and put first things first. But this, is, this was not Stephen Covey's idea. No disrespect to him. This was God's idea. That God, since the beginning, has been saying to us and his children, you need to put first things first, and I need to be first. You need to put me first from the very beginning. It's so easy for us to kind of get lost in spending our money and our time and energy building up our own palaces, but are we neglecting God's palace? Now, by that, I'm not saying we need to all start writing bigger tithe checks so we can add a wing onto the building. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying... Are we paying attention and prioritizing what God is doing in our lives, in the lives of the people around us? Is he getting our first and our best, or is something else? Do we need to turn back our focus to God? This week, this month, this year, what's been at the top of your focus? Has it been your house, your family, your kids, your job, the NBA finals? <laughs> JT, I'm just, since you're sitting up front, I'm just picking on, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but because if, it, if it's anything other than God, then God wants us to, to, to repent to him, to turn back. And repentance often gets a bad rap. Michael spoke about this last week. He talked about the prophet Joel, and it was an excellent talk. If you, if you didn't hear it, if you weren't here last week, download it or pick up a free CD on the way out the door. But one of the things he talked about is that God is our father, and he wants us to repent and turn to him not so he can punish us, but because he loves us. Because he wants us to know that we can turn to him so he can take hold of our wrist and guide us, not slap us on it. Not only were the people of Israel focused on their houses and their jobs, Ezra tells us that some of the non-Jewish locals who had kind of moved into the area while they were all gone, that they were actually actively opposing Zerubbabel building the temple. And they even got the next king of Persia, you know, Zerubbabel's boss, to issue a decree to try to stop him from building it. And in this life, there are going to be people who are going to try to convince you that you don't have to prioritize God to the top. And maybe it is going to be your neighbors and boss, like the people in this story. It may not be in so direct ways. It may be in more subtle ways. Maybe you, you're talking with your neighbor and they make some comment and they make you feel like you know, your kid's schedule needs to be the top of your list. Or you know, they just remodeled their house or put on an addition and you feel like, well, now we gotta do that. We gotta keep up with them. We, gotta, we wanna make sure that our, our property value increases so if we ever wanna sell it someday, we gotta, you know, we gotta do all that stuff. Or maybe your boss, you know, wants you to work more hours or, or start putting in time on the weekend and pressures you with promotions and, you know, raises, and you feel like you have, to, you have to do that. See, that's what the people living in Jerusalem were going through. They were, they were making their homes and their jobs and, and they were, their top priority, they were doing what their neighbors and their boss wanted them to, but it wasn't working out so well for them. Things weren't going so great. So whether... Whether it's being distracted or discouraged by others, we can easily be drawn 
I know I can easily be drawn away from making God number one in my life. But if we repent and return to him, he is so faithful to help us with all those other needs. You know, a few, mo- few weeks ago, I guess it was maybe a month or two ago, I, I preached on a different topic, and I shared four questions that pop up on my phone every, every day that are like discussions I have with God. If you were here, you might remember that. And I didn't really talk about what those specific questions were because that wasn't really the point of the talk. But the last question that pops up on my phone every night before I go to bed is this one, if you want to throw that up. Is there anything I need to repent of today? Is there anything I need to repent of today? And every night before I go to bed, I have that conversation with God. And you know what? I've learned a few things. I've learned, one, there's a lot of things I have to repent of every day. (laughs) That my priorities are constantly getting out of order. It's a constant recorrection. And second, I've learned that repentance gets easier with practice. It gets easier with practice. I'm learning to go to God a lot quicker, more often. I'm learning that to love that time of day where, where, I, where I kind of pour out my heart to God and say, I'm, I'm sorry for this, God. I messed up here. I sinned here. I shouldn't have done that. And, and to just him to kind of come back and say, it's okay, Andrew. I still love you. We'll work on that. We'll work on that tomorrow. And, and to not, be so, not make repentance this big, scary thing, that it can be this wonderful, loving thing that God wants us to, to do with him regularly. And how, how did the people of Israel respond to Zechariah to repent? Well, we, we read in verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6, that it tells us Zechariah simply says they repented. That's it. Again, not a man of many details. But Haggai is more specific. He gives us a little bit more. He says that Zerubbabel the governor, Joshua the high priest, and every single person repented and began to rebuild the temple. They put their repentance in action. They did something about it. The people returned to God and they shifted their priorities back to God, making him first. So so what do you and I need to reorder in our lives this week? What do we need to do? What actions do we need to take to make sure that God is number one? So the first theme in this first theme, Zechariah, like a good prophet, he calls the people to repentance. But unlike most of the other prophets, he doesn't spend much time on this theme. Most of the prophets kind of go into lots of details about repentance. Zechariah kind of, okay, I did that. I'm moving on. Because the rest of the book is totally different. Starting in, in one, chapter 1, verse 7, and then all the way through chapter 6, Zechariah gives these eight supernatural visions that he has with God. He describes them in detail. Each one of them has this deep symbolic meaning, and they're all meant to encourage the people of Israel that God is not left, has not left them, that he has not forgotten them. Even though some of the exiles had been able to return, we know that things were still not perfect. The city was still in shambles. They had no king. Yeah, Zerubbabel was governor, but he was still under the authority of the king of Persia. They were far from the wonderful glory days that they were told about of King David and King Solomon. So God begins to give Zechariah these powerful visions. And each one of them is, has, explains this wonderful plan, this wonderful plan in which this angelic being explains them to Zechariah. I, I kind of imagine it like this. Zechariah has this vision, 
And there's this angel standing behind, by him and kind of explains what all this vision means. It's kind of like, do you remember the, the play A Christmas Carol with Ebenezer Scrooge? Remember that? And Ebenezer Scrooge has these kind of dreams and the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future are kind of there to explain it. I kind of imagine something like that where, where this angel is standing beside Zechariah explaining all these things to him. Maybe that's just how my weird mind works. But, but in one of the visions... There are these four patrolling horses, each with a different color. And and the angel says to Zechariah, these horses symbolize God is keeping guard over Jerusalem. He is going to protect you from your enemies. He's going to give you rest from your enemies right now. In another vision, a man is going around with a measuring line. He's measuring all over Jerusalem. And the angel tells him that he's he's preparing the city to have all these Israelites, these Jewish people move back to Jerusalem, that it's gonna be a great city again with lots of people living in it. And what are the purposes for visions like this? What, what was he doing? Well, as Zechariah tells these visions to Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, and all the people, they were encouraged that God remembers them, that he was with them even though their present circumstances weren't that great. And that's the next point in your notes, that God remembers us in our present circumstances, that he is with us and remembers us. See, even though the people had repented and begun to rebuild the temple, they did not have any idea how it was going to happen, how it was going to get done. Like I mentioned earlier, we knew that there were some non-Jewish locals who were working really hard to try to stop them, to convince them, convince the king of Persia that they shouldn't be doing it. And in the people's mind, God wasn't with them yet. God would only come back when the temple was done and God's presence was in the temple. To them, they were on their own. They thought they had to do this by themselves. But then Zechariah starts to have these visions and speaks on behalf of God and tells them otherwise. He says, no, 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 no. God God is saying he's right here with us right now. That he is right here and he's going to protect us and he's going to guarantee that this temple gets done. In Zechariah 4, verses um, 6 and 9, this is what it says about Zerubbabel and how he will get the temple done. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, it says in verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Almighty Lord. And then in verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the temple. Yep, you did that 17 years ago, Zerubbabel. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. So God is saying to his people, you started building this temple 17 years ago and you stopped. You were scared. You didn't know how it was going to get done, but I'm going to guarantee that nothing is going to stop it and that you're going to finish it. Go ahead and put that timeline back up again. From the book of Ezra, we know historically that around 520 B.C., Zerubbabel and the people did restart building the temple. And it took them four years, but in 516 BC, they finished it. They finished it. And I don't know if you know this, but the time that it was destroyed to the time that it was rebuilt is exactly 70 years. Exactly 70 years. And I just found out that that's like a biblical number. That 70, you know, is the factors of seven and 10. And seven means perfection. And 10 means completeness. Put those two together, and you have the perfect, complete temple is restored. 
And, and for the first 70 years, for 70 years, they were finally able to completely worship God the way that he wanted them to. And what gave Zerubbabel the courage and the strength to keep going, even when things didn't look good, even when there was pushback and resistance from the locals, it was the fact that Zerubbabel knew that God was with them and remembered them. These visions of the future that Zechariah was having filled them with faith in the present, that God remembered them. And I don't know if you know this, but the name Zechariah literally means the Lord remembers. Actually, that's what it means. That's what the name means. That's so prophetic, that, that the Lord remembers, he remembers you and me. He never forgets us. Even when our present circumstances appear to be negative, and it seems like God is not active, he remembers you. About nine years ago, a little over nine years ago, I had probably the closest thing I would ever say to a, a Zechariah-like vision that ever happened to me. Um, it, was a sun, it was on a Sunday morning in this room. I was actually sitting in that back row right back there with my wife, Sarah. And uh, it was in the middle of worship. And it was a song that I kind of knew, so I didn't really have to look at the words too much. I had my eyes closed, and I remember I was just kind of singing. I was kind of into it. And all of a sudden, my, I had a picture in my mind. And the picture was of Danny Meyer standing up here preaching. And then within a second, Danny disappeared, and it was me up here preaching. And I heard very clearly, as like loud voice, get ready, you're going to be a pastor. Now, that may not sound that odd to you as I'm standing up here right here today, but nine years ago, that was not on my radar at all. I had no, I had not thought about that at all. I had no aspirations for that. I, I just, I was about ready to finish my third year of, of teaching elementary school. I loved my job. I loved my kids, my, you know, the team I worked with, my principal. My plan was to work another 30 some years and retire. That was my plan. And all of a sudden I had this, this picture happen. And I thought, that was weird. I literally turned around to see who was messing with me, talking in my ear, and there was nobody there. And I thought, okay, one of two things is happening. I'm either going crazy, which is possible, or two, that was God. That was God. But I looked at my circumstances at that time, and I thought, that is never going to happen. I don't really see how that could ever happen, God. My wife had just, we just had our first child, Ava, who's now almost 10, uh, was less than one. And uh, my wife had just resigned from working. Um, and so we were on one income. I wasn't going to quit my job and go back to school. I had no ministry degree. I had very little experience. Um, I just didn't see how it was ever going to happen. And over the course of the next nine years, like I, I, there were times where I just really felt like, no way. No way. But I remember about a year or two after I had that, that memory or that, that, that picture, that vision, Sarah turned to me and said, hey, do you remember that one time you, God told you to get ready, you're going to be a pastor? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Well, are you getting ready? <laughs> and I said, I said, no. <laughs> Honestly, I avoided it. I really, I just, I avoided it for a long time because I just didn't see how it, could, how it was going to work. How it was going to happen. And I remember after that, I, I called Michael. We had breakfast. And I said, Michael, I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I think maybe someday I'm supposed to be a pastor. And he said, well, why don't, why, don't you, why, don't, why don't you start leading a small group? 
Lead a small group. See how that goes. See if, see if you enjoy it. See if you're good at it. See if it's a calling in your life. See if you like doing that. And I loved it. And I'd led small groups in the past, but taking a break. And, and then, I don't know if you remember, Jake and Pam Lozano, they, they used to be the youth leaders. So they kind of took me under their wing for a while, and they gave me opportunities to preach in the in youth group, and I loved it. And over time, I just, I, I kept being asked to do things. I never really forced anything. I never really forced anything to happen, but Michael and the staff would just kind of keep, hey, why, would you do this? Would you speak at this event or do this? And I just kept saying, okay. And, and, and I just kept stepping out in faith. I just kept testing it. But, but during that time, again, during that time, my, my wife, I've told this story before, my wife was sick for a few years uh, with some undiagnosed autoimmune stuff, and I just remember thinking, well, that, I could never change careers. Like, I, like, working weekends and evenings, like that, there's no way we could do that. And she's doing a lot better now. Um, and there have been multiple pastors who have been hired on staff here. And I had, the, there was this temptation in my mind to say, well, see, look, they just got hired on. There's, there's no room for you. There's no room for you. And, and by the way, I absolutely adore every one of them. But... Um, but my mind would just keep going back to that. Nope, nope. Just keep going. Just keep building. Just like Zerub, God told Zerubbabel, just start building. I will guarantee it gets done. I will, I will guarantee it gets done. I just, I kept going back to that memory. That, that vision kept me going. That kept me going. And I don't know if you were here last week, um, but at some of the services, Michael announced that I, I resigned from teaching after 12 years. And in the fall, I'm going to come on staff here. And, and I couldn't be more excited. But listen, listen, don't, like, don't clap for me. Clap for God. That is, that is on him. Like, I, I mean, there is, there is absolutely, there is absolutely nothing special about me. Nothing special about me. I joked last night, I am just a skinny sinner <laughs> trying to follow and stumble along following Jesus. That's it. There is, there's nothing special about me. I'm just trying to figure this out as I go. But what I do know is that God, God has unique plans, purposes, callings on each of us. And when, when we step out in that, when we just like Zerubbabel, he just was a normal guy, just a regular guy. But when we just start doing what God calls us to do, God will be faithful to, to step in. He remembers us. He rem- even when it looks like he doesn't. Even when it looks like he doesn't. And look, listen, you don't have to have a supernatural vision to know that God remembers you. You don't have to have an encounter like that. An encouraging word from a friend, God can use that. God can speak through a, through a, through a friend or a family member to encourage you and remind you that God's with you. You can look at scripture. Scripture is full of verses of encouraging words that remind us that God is with us. Throw up, throw up the, there's a couple of verses there. Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you or forsake you. The famous Psalm, Psalm, Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You're with me. Verse after verse after verse of the Bible reminds us that God remembers us, that he's with us, protecting, guiding, comforting, encouraging, right here, right now, in our present circumstances, even when things aren't looking that good. Even when you're going through hard times and wondering, what is God doing in my life? He has not forgotten you. He is right here today with you.
I think that for many of us, we are not only concerned with our present circumstances, but, but we're concerned about the future as well. We're worried about the state of our, of our society, of our nations. We're worried about retirement. We're worried about our kids, our grandkids. What's the world going to be like when they get older? You know, but the book of Zechariah, he spends a lot of time focusing on addressing the future. A future age, what, the apocalypse. A lot of Zechariah is considered apocalyptic literature. When the world as we know it will end and God's kingdom will reign forever and ever. And the original audience of Zechariah's book, as well as, as us today, we're, we're looking forward to a time with hope and anticipation when all the things that are wrong in this world will be made right. And that's the third point in our notes, that God gives us hope for his future kingdom. He gives us a hope for his future kingdom. Much, much of that second section, nine, chapters 9 through 14, it focuses on this future age, the future kingdom, what they call the day of Yahweh or the day of the Lord. And the very last chapter, chapter 14 of Zechariah, describes this future day. He talks about when all the nations will gather and fight against Jerusalem in battle, but God will fight the nations. And lots of miracles are going to happen. There's going to be no more cold, no more night. Plagues will come on the enemies. And in the end, the nations will all end up coming and worshiping God. It's really a, quite a kind of a crazy scene described. But the big picture I have idea at the end is that God wins. It's that God wins. That God's kingdom will reign forever. And this gave the people listening to Zechariah hope. It filled them with hope. But they thought to themselves, this future kingdom, they thought, needs a king. Every kingdom needs a king. And, and what kind of king will this person be and who will it be? Will it be Zerubbabel? Well, it didn't exactly turn out like they thought it would. In Zechariah earlier, one of his visions that he has in chapter three, this is, the, this is a great vision to study and come back to. Chapter three, verses one through six. It's quite an unusual thing that happens. It says this, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. And then I said, put, off, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Now this is, this is an interesting story. Joshua who was the high priest at the time of this post-exilic Jerusalem, is being accused by Satan and basically on trial before God in this vision. And interestingly enough, by the way, this is only the second time in the Old Testament that Satan is ever mentioned by name. He's referred to in the garden, you know, as the serpent and things like that. But only the second time he's actually called Satan in the Old Testament. The other time's in the book of Job and kind of another accusatory setting. But God actually reprimands Satan and orders that the filthy clothes be taken off of Joshua 
and fine, clean clothes put on him as a symbol of taking away all his sin. Later in chapter 6, God tells Zechariah to make a crown of silver and gold and put it on Joshua's head and to make a throne for him to sit on. So why are, why are these things, things so fascinating and unexpected? Well, the reason why is because Joshua was the high priest. And high priests don't wear crowns or sit on thrones. That's what kings do. That's what kings do. Israel longed for a king like David to be raised up, and they hoped it might be Zerubbabel, the governor. But notice, he's not mentioned at all in this passage. And he never became king of Israel. So did Joshua become king? Actually, he never did either. See, this idea, this idea of a king-priest figure being the same person up until this point was unheard of in Jewish thinking. It was, un, it was brand new. In their culture, it was always two separate people. There was the king and there was the high priest. The king was in charge of, had authority over the people in an earthly sense, and the high priest had authority in a spiritual sense, in a heavenly sense. But what the people didn't understand was that Zechariah, he wasn't talking about in their lifetimes. He was predicting a future time, a future time when a different Joshua would become both king and high priest. He was talking about Jesus. And I don't know if you know this, but the Hebrew name Joshua is the same word Jesus in Greek. They have the exact same name. And 500 years later, Jesus comes on the scene and he has both the authority and power of a perfect king and the anointing and the sacrificial rite of the perfect high priest. And even though Satan accuses him, the Lord rebukes him, and as Jesus, this other Joshua, sacrifices himself like only the high priest could do on the cross, and the people labeled him king of the Jews, and as high priest, he wiped away the sins, making him clean, and now he sits on the throne in heaven. We see that Jesus is the perfect image of this king-priest combined that Zechariah predicted. And this was the beginning of the future age. And even though we haven't seen the end of it yet, even though it hasn't come totally to the end, Jesus began it. He is the answer. He is the answer. And all we have to do to be a part of that perfect kingdom is to accept him as our king and high priest and we can have hope that God has been with us in the past. He is with us right now in our present. And he will remain with us and welcome us into the future kingdom of God. So here is the all-important question. Here's the all-important question. Is Jesus your king priest? If he is, then, then your past, present, future is secure in the kingdom of God. And if it's not, or if you're not sure it is, it's really simple. All you have to do is ask him. All you have to do is ask him. You know, in, in Luke's story of, of Jesus, in Luke's gospel, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, there are two criminals, one on his left and one on his right, and one criminal makes fun of him. But what does the other criminal do? What does the other criminal say? He turns to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
He recognized that Jesus was the king and that he wanted to be a part of that kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? Did he turn to him and say, oh, too late. (laughs) You've done too many bad things. Nope, that's not what he said at all. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. All All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask. So if you would say that you have never asked Jesus to be your king, if, if you have never said, I want a relationship with you, God, and you want to do that today, just, just put your hand up right now, right where you're at. Just do that. Is there anybody who wants to do that today? Is there anybody who wants to say, I want to start a relationship with Jesus? It's that simple. It's that simple. If that's you, and you, know, you maybe felt nervous about raising your hand, that's not a big deal. But giving your life to him is. It is a big deal. And I would encourage you to get prayer and come up for prayer in a little bit if you want to do that. Somebody will pray for you and just encourage you as you start your journey with God. Because that's a big deal. Why don't we go ahead and stand up? Let's stand up. For the rest of us, if right now there are areas in your life that are a wreck, that are broken, if you're sick or you're struggling, God is not only willing to forgive you your past, not only that, he remembers you in your present circumstances and he's going to make things right in the future. So I want to, at the end of every service, we like to take some time to respond. Because it would be silly for us to say, oh, that was great, that was a great message, I learned some new things, but not respond to what God is doing in our hearts. So I want to invite a few of you to come up and get prayer for a few things. If anything I said today really like struck you, like, oh, that's me, that I want to encourage you to come up. And some of you might be people you realize, yeah, my priorities have been out of whack a little bit. I have not been putting God first. You know, this thing or this thing, I've been trying to force this to happen or make this happen. It hasn't been going right. God is calling you to, lo- to repent. He just wants to love on you and and just encourage you that you're forgiven and just redirect you. And I think for some of us, that idea of repentance is really, really hard. It's really hard. Maybe it's the way you were raised or it's our pride. But to say, I I was wrong or I've been doing this wrong is like, there's like a, it's really, really hard for you. I think for some of you, it's like a spiritual thing. Like the the enemy, like Satan doesn't want you to repent because he knows what God's going to say. He knows God's going to say, you're forgiven. Turn, come, come with me. Come hang out with me. And I think God wants to break some of you of that, that fear of repentance. Um, so I know a lot of you are struggling. I know a lot of you are going through tough times. You're wondering, why, where is God at? Where is, how is this going to happen? I feel like God told me this was going to happen. I feel like he was going to take care of this, and I just don't see it happening that there's something in your present circumstances right now that you just need to know that God sees you, that he remembers you, that he has not forgotten you. Come up and get prayer for that. And, and, and also, I just think there's a few of you that, that you're really afraid of the future. You're afraid, you're afraid of the future. You're worried about retirement. You're worried about cancer. You're worried about your kids, your grandkids down the road, and it wears on you. It wears you down, but you need to be encouraged today and be filled with the hope, the hope that only God can give, the perfect hope that his kingdom wins, and he wants to fill you with that sustaining hope today. Do you have a word, Michael? 
Um, I just have this sense that uh, who here today has, I'll get real specific, uh, pain in your molars or mouth sores, like cankers. Anyone here have that? Okay, two. So that's you. We, I just felt like God pointed that out. We want to pray for you. We always want to pray for the sick. So if you're anyone that's sick, we'd love to invite you forward. But then I also had this sense that as Andrew was talking, that there are people here today that you really struggle with your job. Like You know how we'll say, ah, it's, well, it pays the bills. It's a paycheck. And I feel like you're even beyond that where you, it's just miserable to you. And, mm. and for some, I felt like God said he wants to put value on your job. That like Andrew sharing his story, that God actually called him into a career that God has called you into a career, into this place of work, and he wants to put value on your job, that you'll see the, what he's doing in the midst of, of your job. That's great. That's great. So if any of those things apply, why don't you go ahead and start to make, forward, make your way forward. Ben's going to lead us in a worship song. It's a song we sang, actually, in worship earlier, but I think the theme and the words that we're going to sing apply completely with what we were talking about today. So go ahead and start to make your way forward, and guys, pray for guys, girls, pray for girls.
getting prayer I just continue to to be encouraged by what God has for you but I just want to end by praying and closing for the rest of us here so if you'll if you're in your seats and you want to join me God you you are a dad who loves your kids you love us and you love showing us in a gentle way when our priorities are out of whack and welcoming us back and and redirecting us and showing us a better way. And you promise to remember us and to never leave us, forsake us, forget us. And you're with us right now with all the stuff that we're going through. And God, you love to fill us with hope, a sustaining hope for the future, for not only our future, but our kids and our grandkids and our grandkids' future for the future of this world. So we thank you for that. I pray this week that we would be filled in those ways, that we would be reminded of those things. We thank you for your goodness and your love. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen.